America's favorite mystical theologian, Oprah Winfrey, once said, what I know for sure is that speaking your truth is the most powerful tool we all have. Speaking your truth, your individual truth, as you see your truth. Well, may may I humbly and gently say, there's nothing more stupid in the world anyone could say. (laughs) What happens when your truth collides with my truth? What happens when your truth collides with reality? What happens when your truth is you shouldn't be married to your wife and you want to leave your wife and kids because that's your truth. What happens when your truth collides with his truth? You see, we, we know what this looks like in the world. We live in a world where people are, are cherishing and holding to their truths, amen, how they see fit. Now, the, the wondrous thing about that is if it's my truth, it's limited by my wisdom, and my knowledge, and my understanding of history, and my understanding of reality. Who would want that? Who would want everything that you think to be limited by the only thing that you can think? And yet that's the crazy world that we live in. Yet I also submit to you that there are people who are professing believers who do the same thing. They live by their truth. And they outwardly profess the God that saved them. They outwardly profess Jesus. They outwardly profess the things that they are supposed to do. But inwardly, there's nothing in them that resembles the God that they profess. And one of the hardest ways for believers, even believers who are fighting for truth, one of the hardest things for believers to come to terms with is their own view of their own sovereignty when it clashes with God's view of his sovereignty. Because God is sovereign. And there's no almost sovereign, right? You either is or you ain't. And all our teachers can go correct me later. You... You are either sovereign or you are not. And if you are sovereign, no one else is. And if you are sovereign, you do as you please. Well, when you combine that with all wisdom and righteousness and truth and justice and all the other aspects of God's character, that we know that when God does something, it's not only because he wants to, it's because he wants to because it's good. Because it aligns with his character, because it aligns with his plan, his mission that he is carrying out. And the hardest part for many believers to come to terms with is that includes salvation. That God is completely and totally in control of salvation. And that you and I have nothing to do with it. Even the response that we have of repentance and faith is a gift from God. And that's hard for us. Because we want to be, we want to do something. We want to contribute something. We want to have our, our two bits in. Isaiah's having none of that. Let me be more specific. Yahweh is having none of that in chapter 48. Yahweh is reminding us that everything he does is for his own glory and the sake of his own name. Yahweh is reminding us that no one is deserving of salvation. But he has set his affections on a people, made a covenant that he will keep. 
And he will honor that covenant to the end because he is a faithful God, full of truth and righteousness. Now, we could summarize all of chapter 48 under that, under that banner right there and go home. But God didn't. He gave us 22 verses that we'll look at this morning to hammer home to us the fact that God is sovereign. And what I want us to realize today are two realities that you must fight against. You must fight against the reality that you can turn into an external worshiper where your internal heart is dying. Now that could lead to your demise. It could mean that you are not saved to begin with. But it can also be a coldness that God needs to discipline. We want to guard against that. We want to learn this morning a little bit of what that looks like. But we also want to remember that everything God does is for the sake of his name, for his own glory. And if God does everything for the sake of his name, for his own glory, we must do everything for the sake of his name and his own glory. If we can get those two facts deep into us this morning, then there may be a turning point for some of you. Maybe your turning point will be unto salvation because you realize you have trusted in your own works and not in the works of Christ. Maybe the turning point will be just finally being able to crucify the sin that you've never felt like you could crucify before. Maybe the turning point will be that you realize that you have no joy in your life because you're pursuing your own life. It is, it is, it is your truth that leads your life and there's no joy because God is constantly showing you that leads to nowhere, that leads to no joy, that leads to, no, to, to destruction. I don't know what your turning point is, but Isaiah intends for you to turn today, and so do I. Chapter 48 of Isaiah. Let's stand together. Isaiah 48. Hear this, O house of Jacob who are called by the name of Israel who, and who come from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of Yahweh and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel. Yahweh of hosts is his name. The former things I declared of old... They went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass. I declared them to you of old, from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. You have heard, now see all this, and will you not declare it? From this time forth I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today you have never heard of them, lest you should say, behold, I knew them. You have never heard, and you have never known from of old your ear has not been opened, for I knew that you would surely deal treacherously and that from before birth you were called a rebel. For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you 
but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. Assemble, all of you, and listen. Who among them has declared these things? Yahweh loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him, and he will prosper in his way. Draw near to me. Hear this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now Yahweh, and now Lord, Yahweh, has sent me and his spirit. Thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am Yahweh, your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments, that your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. Go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it, send it out to the end of the earth, say, Yahweh has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. There is no peace, says Yahweh, for the wicked. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. Well, verse chapter 48 serves as a summary for this section of Isaiah, chapter 40 through 48. And it serves as a summary because it does summarize much of what has been brought to us in these chapters, but it also opens up to us hints of where we're going in chapter 49 with the second servant song. Just think of yourself driving through a tunnel and there's a light every few feet and every time that you go under that light you get a quick glimpse of everything and then it goes to darkness again. We almost have something like that where we get these quick glimpses of what's coming as the past in Isaiah has been summarized for us. So in this chapter, we, we close up verses, or chapters 40 through 48. We begin to open up chapters 49 through 55 in this second major section of Isaiah. And since it's a summary, I, I hope you see when we read this, there are, there are clear markers of two sections in this text, 11 verses each. If you look at verse 1, hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel. And look at verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, whom I called. So we have these clear markings of two sections in the text. And since there's so much summary, we just have an easy outline, a summarizing outline, that we have two promises that Yahweh is making to his people. Two promises that Yahweh makes to his people. The first one, in verses 1 through 11, he says, You are obstinate, but I have refined you for my own sake and for my own glory. 
You are obstinate, but I have refined you for my own sake and for my own glory. Now there's more in this verses one through 11 than that, but that is the point. He starts there and he ends there and in between he shows why he gets all the glory and why they are obstinate. He gives us a clear picture of this. Now as we go through, I don't want you to just think that they are like that. I want you to realize you can be like this. You might be one who's here who does not know the Lord Jesus, but you come every week and you sing the songs that you want to sing and you might be active in other parts of church, but you don't know him. And there may be others of us here that are believers but are struggling and we're falling into a darkness that what, we, what people see on the outside is not what's going on on the inside. So this is for us, not just for them way back there. Look at verse 1. Hear this, we start out, that's a marker all the way through this chapter. The verb appears 10 different times in different forms, and there are four clear, distinct commands that we see for the the command uh, to hear. Right in verse 1, we see it again in verse 12, again in verse 14, and again in verse 16. Hear this, hear this, listen. Our ears must be open. This is that summary chapter that brings to us important truths that are the central truths of Isaiah. Hear this, and now look at this this three-part parallelism. O house of Jacob, who are called by the name Israel, and who came from the waters of Judah. Now, is that just poetic repetition, just saying, oh, this is God's people? This is the God's people who he's talking to? And I think it is poetic repetition, but I think each of those terms is pregnant for us. We've already looked at the difference between Jacob and Israel, especially in chapters 40 through 48. Remember, we have seen that oftentimes these two terms are brought to us, and we should remember the former and the latter. Jacob, the the deceiver, the heel catcher, who wrestles with God, and God changes his name to Israel. There's a before and an after where God has, in effect, saved him and given him this new name of Israel. So we see that here again look at how it's put hear this O house of Jacob that's who you are who are called by the name of Israel right so that God has God has done something in you he is he has called he's changed Jacob's name to Israel but he has also changed the hearts of the people as well those who he has chosen to do so but then look at the third and who came from the waters of Judah from the fountainhead of Judah now, that's just not another way of talking about the southern kingdom. This is, this is a way to direct our minds and our hearts toward the covenant that God made with David. Because if you think back to when this, the, the kingdom divides in 1 Kings chapter 11, it's a very pregnant section of scripture, and it's so important in the progression of the, the uh, history of the monarchy. You have David and then his son Solomon who, who are reigning over prosperity and riches. 1 Kings chapter 10 begins to tell us about uh, the wisdom of Solomon and then on to the riches of Solomon. And then we have the page turned to chapter 11 and everything crumbles. Why? Because Solomon brings wives from other nations into his house and he loved them. And they put their gods up on the mantles and he began to build altars to them and everything begins to crumble. God is displeased with this and he says, I will take the kingdom from you. But because of my covenant, David, I will not take it from you. I will wait till your son. And he, God, 
orchestrates giving ten, the ten northern tribes to a man named Jeroboam, an Ephraimite. He gives the ten northern tribes there, but for the sake of the covenant that he made with David, he gives Judah to his son, Rehoboam. And when we look in, in 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 21.7, it's very clear that God refused to take all of the tribes away for the sake of the covenant that he made with David because he made the covenant to be eternal with David. So keep that in mind. It's not just David or his son sitting on the throne. It is eternally someone from the line of David who will sit on the throne and sit as the rightful heir. So already in verse 1, we are, take, we are having all three of these terms brought together as, as this whole section is summed up. You were a people, I've worked in you, and you should be different, but because of the sake of my, for the sake of the covenant that I have made, I am going to work even though you're obstinate. All of that's brought for us in the names in chapter 48, verse 1, the first three lines. Look back at your text at verse 1. They're described again. They're the house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, who came from the waters of Judah, who swore by the name of Yahweh and confessed the God of Israel. Look at verse 2. They call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel, Yahweh of hosts is his name. Now that's a pretty good job description for God's people, isn't it? I mean, if they're doing that, they must be pleasing him. If they're, if they're swearing by the name of the Lord, everything that comes out of their mouth is giving glory to him and recognizing his sovereignty and everything that they say and all their business dealings are saying on the name of our God, Yahweh, who is truth. If they're confessing the God of Israel to all the nations, every time something happens, they're confessing that God is in charge of this and their their trust is in God. Look what it says. They stay themselves. They call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel. They lean upon the God of Israel. And this is what will mark them. If you remember many years ago in chapter 10, when we were in chapter 10 of Isaiah, we saw this helpful little verse in chapter 10, verse 20, that says this about the remnant. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, that's Assyria, in in the setting of Isaiah 10, but will lean on Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. So the remnant has already been brought to us. Any remnant that God raises up and restores, they will lean on him in truth. And so this is what God's people are doing. This is, let me put it contemporary. This is us. We come on Sunday morning and we come to Sunday school and we, we come to worship. We might even stay for a fellowship and go out to lunch with people who are other believers and fellowship with them and talk about the Lord and then talk about how, how faithful he is. We might even show up to growth groups or discipleship groups or, or other groups within the week and, and our, our relationships are bound together by the nature and character of God. We pray in the morning, we read our Bibles Can somebody do that and be lost? Absolutely, they can. Externally, it can be that way. But internally, what was the nation of Israel doing? Look at your text. Look right in the middle of that verse. The last section, the last line of verse 1. But, so they're doing all these things, but the adversity, but not in truth or right. 
or righteousness. So in their hearts, remember the remnant comes and does all of the leaning on Yahweh in truth, but in their hearts, it's not in truth. Let me show you what that looks like for us. You're talking with someone and you are really struggling with something inside. Doesn't matter what it is. It could be a relationship. It could be a personal sin. It could be anything at all. You're really struggling. And somebody comes up to you and they say, how are you doing? Oh, everything's great. Jesus is good. Is that a true statement? Jesus is good? Should everything be great, even if you don't think it's great? Is, if he's in charge, isn't he causing all things to work together for good for those who loved him and are called according to his purpose? Yes. So it's not a false statement. But if you say that, oh, gee, I don't need anything but Jesus. It's just me and Jesus. That's all it takes. And you smile, and inside that struggle, that anger, that whatever that you're dealing with, you walk away from that person and you're back to dealing with it out of your flesh. You're angry and you don't know what to do with it. You're hurt and you won't go talk to the person. You are, whatever it is, I mean, put, put it in there, but if, you, if outwardly you say one thing and inwardly you're doing another, then you're not outwardly doing it in truth or in righteousness, are you? Can that happen to you? Yes. So this is not just an Israel problem. It's a humanity problem. It's not just a lost person problem. It is a saved person challenge that those kinds of things we must crucify. I mean, if, you, if you've got relationship troubles with someone, you need to go talk to them, not just stew about it and be in anger. If you've been hurt by someone, you need to go talk to them. If you're fighting a sin and you can't seem to master it, you need to go talk to someone and say, help me understand the scriptures better in this area. That's what truth and righteousness looks like. Why? Because it's not about you. It's about giving glory to God in your life because he does everything for his glory, which we will come to in a minute. So I don't want us to leave these verses without realizing that you and I, even professing believers, can fall into these kinds of traps that our heart is not matching the external reality that we present to other people. And we want to fight against that as a body. We want to be as a body where somebody comes up to you because they realize something's out of sorts. If you've got the strong enough relationship with that person, you tell them. And even if you don't have that strong enough relationship with them, you say, yeah, I'm really dealing with some things, but... I just don't even know how to start talking about it. Maybe you're not sure about that person. Maybe you've not had the developed relationship, but that should show you that if you don't have a relationship with anybody to be able to talk about that, then you've been doing things externally and not internally, right? Because you should have close relationships with people to be able to do that. Now, we could park here forever, but that's not the point of this chapter, is it? Or is it? We don't lose favor in God's eyes, if we struggle like this. Because he is doing everything for his own glory. He is doing everything. He is doing all the work. And he will sustain you, because otherwise his name will be shamed. But that doesn't mean we don't still put out all of the effort to apply the gospel to our lives every single day and get rid of the facades. Now... I know I'm going to step on some people's toes here, but did you know that in the South, there are sometimes people who have a facade around them all the time, more than in the North and in the Northwest and in the Northeast? Some of you are shaking your heads and you're the ones not from the South. I know, I can, I can tell. <laughs> we have to fight this because it's about God's glory. Well, look at verse three. We go into our review 
The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth, I announced them. Literally, this, this, this verb for I announced has the idea of I caused them to be heard. There's a causality here. Um, in the Lord, that he not only announced them, but he announced them and caused them to be heard. That'll be important as we go through here. They went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. So we've seen this multiple times in these chapters, right? God says, I've, I've announced before what I was going to do in the future and I told you why I was going to do it and I can go back and look at everything that is done because nothing is done outside of my purview and I can tell you why I did it and I'm going to announce things about the future that haven't happened yet but I'm going to announce them now so I get glory when they do happen and he's used that to challenge the idols of the people and, and even his own people why they would go after idols Here he's reminding us of that um, kind of idea, but then he ties it specifically to the hearts of his people. Look at verse four. Why did he do this? Because I know that you are obstinate. Your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass. The reason he did it in advance, he did it, announced it in the past and then suddenly did it according to his plan, according to his timetable, is because if it was any other way, people would have taken credit for it. His own people would have taken credit for it and they're obstinate in their... Can you imagine any stronger words to describe that? Can you imagine any stronger words? Your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass. You're stiff-necked and hard-headed. Not me, you. <laughs> We're all like this at times, right? This is what Jeremiah, this is what is said in Jeremiah chapter 3. It uses those words, stiff-necked and hard-headed, and it says, I'm sending you to a people but I've made, that are like this, but I've made you like that as well so that you don't fear them. They're going to be stiff-necked and hard-headed, but I've made you more stiff-necked or more hard-headed, he doesn't say stiff-necked, I've made more, you more hard-headed so that you don't fear them, you fear me. You can just picture the person who is being obstinate and fighting against an idea or fighting against, even having straps on, pulling you back, and you're just straining forward and your veins are popping out. And That's the picture here. God's people to his sovereign work. That's the picture. So he said, this is why I've done this. This is why that I declared them from old and then suddenly did them. I announced them so nobody else could take credit, especially you. Look at verse six. You have heard, now see all this. And will you not declare it? I've told it to you already, he's saying, and now you see it. Now you have evidence. Will you not declare it? At the beginning, what does it say? They confess the God of Israel. So will you not do that here? God says to his people. From this time forth, I announce, cause you to hear to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are, not, they are created now, not long ago. Before today, you have never heard of them, lest you should say, behold, I knew them. So now he's talking about things that are going to happen. And he's, what he's saying is, listen, there are things that I have not revealed to you yet. You have not known them. Uh, they have not been declared to you. They, from this time forth, I will announce them and cause you to hear these new things. But they've been hidden from you. 
Even though that I might have been planting them long ago, they've been hidden from you. Now, what's he talking about in these old things and the new things? This idea of old uh, uh, in, in the time of old permeates this. Of old in verse three, of old in verse five, um, not long ago, not of old in verse seven, from old in verse eight. What's in front of us here is a picture of what he said he will do in Cyrus. Cyrus, he's already announced, right? He's told them 150 years before Cyrus is actually raised up, he told them he would do that so that he would get credit for it. That's what he said of old. But the new things, we've just gone under one of those lights in the tunnel. There's a little glimpse. There's a little glimpse of the servant that will come in chapters 49, 50, and 51, and 52, and 3. A little glimpse of that, and we'll come back to this. He uses the same framework of old and new to tell us about Cyrus and the servant in later verses in 15 through 16. So he's pulling all of this out here to say, I've done these things because I knew who you were. You were obstinate. You would take credit for them. You would say your idols have done them. And look at what he says in verse 8. There's really a little word in Hebrew that means also that precedes these phrases. In verse 8, also you have never heard, also you have never known, also from of old your ear has not been opened. Why? For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth you were called a rebel. That dealing treacherously has to do with, with the idea of being faithless faithlessness in your, in your actions, being unfaithful. So how would they deal treacherously? Because they would take the works of God and attribute them to their own idols. Verse 9 begins to give us the meat of who God is and gives us the anchor for our chapter. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise... I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. Now, just to point out just a couple of things in these verses. Notice that it's, he is deferring anger and restraining it so that he does not cut them off. That's covenant language again. That's the language of the covenant. When we, when we see the language of the covenant in, in the Old Testament scriptures, that's the term, to cut a covenant. And if you break the covenant, you are cut off from the benefits of that, of that covenant. And so he's saying that he is deferring anger and restraining it for the sake of his praise and for the sake of his name so that he does not cut them off. This is something that has happened throughout Old Testament history for us where God says he's not acting for anything of their doing, but he's acting for his own doing. Listen to Exodus 32, beginning in verse 11. But Moses implored Yahweh, his God, and said, Yahweh, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out? to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and relent from 
this disaster against your people. Remember, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And Yahweh relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. You see what he did there, right? He said, you have promised to preserve your people. And so because of your promise, why would your name, why would you allow your name to be drugged through the mud? Why would you allow your name to be profaned and shamed by letting some nation overtake us? So he's pleading for the salvation of the people and not to punish them for their rebellion, but he does so on the basis of God's character. You have promised to do this, and if you don't act, they're going to shame you by shaming us. Do you ever pray that way? Do you ever pray, God, you promised to redeem your people. Now, I don't know if this person that I'm praying for is is in your sights to redeem, but if you don't redeem them, it brings shame to your name. You, God, have set your people apart for righteousness. You have set your people apart in giving them your word so that they can reflect your character. And I'm struggling in this area, God. So for the sake of your name, overwhelm my flesh. Teach me how to crucify my flesh and do it for the sake of your name. I will benefit from it, but you will be glorified from it, and that's all I care about. Praying according to the name and character of God is a strong and powerful way to rise God up in his glory right in the middle of your situation. Well, look what he says. I have refined you, verse 10, but not as silver. So in other words, I've refined you, but not completely. If I completely refined you, there'd be nothing left of you. Because when we refine silver, silver's left, but you're obstinate. You are treacherous. You are a rebel, and you have been since birth. So I'm disciplining you. How is that discipline? He has sent them off. And under, the, under the leadership of the Babylonians outside of their homeland and their temple and their city is destroyed. And he's done that for a purpose. He's done that to draw them back unto himself. And so he says, I'm, I've disciplined you. I have, I have refined you. Look what he says in the second half of verse 10. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. Now, if you have the ESV, you have a footnote that says, or I have chosen you for the furnace of affliction. I think that is the proper reading of this text. That's the Hebrew text, the Masoretic text. The, the, the word for tried is in one of the Qumran sw- scrolls, and it fits the imagery of trying and fire, right? That's why it's used. But so does I have chosen you for this. They just didn't wander into captivity. They didn't wander into their discipline. God says, I love you, you are mine, and I'm going to discipline you. I have chosen you for the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, he says it twice in a row, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So God is about the glory of his name. He does everything for his own name and for his own glory, not for our sake, although often we are the beneficiaries of it. Amen? There's a benefit to walking in the fear and knowledge of the Lord, to being obedient to his word, and we'll see that later on. There is a benefit for that, but that's not why God does it. 
God does it because he is the creator king of the universe and there is no one like him. That's what he turns to in the second half of our text. The first half, you are obstinate, but I have refined you for my own sake and for my own glory. And the second half, you disobeyed me, but I will redeem you as I did from Egypt. So just realize where we have been when we get to the end of verse 11. You are not worthy, he says to his people, but I'm going to act for my name's sake. Why? Because I'm the one in charge of it. I do it when I want, how I want, and I do it all for my own glory. And since I'm doing it, it will be right. It will be truth and righteousness. Verse 12, the second command to listen. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. It reminds us back to verse 1. They, they claim to be called by the name of Israel. And God is affirming, yes, I have called you. And if he's called them, what would he expect from them? Remember the, the parable of the vineyard early? He, earlier on in Isaiah, he plants the vineyard, and what does he expect? He expects good fruit, right? Because he planted it, and he tended it. And what does he get instead? Stink fruit. That's what he gets. So he's saying here, I am the one who called. I'm expecting good fruit. I'm expecting obedience. And then he reminds them why. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. Now, in what possible way could he have said, there's none like me in a stronger way than this? This is the strongest way he can say it. I I heard Luke when he was teaching the Sunday school class this morning give different examples of the way we describe ourselves. I am, I I might might say I am Rob or I am a father or I am a husband or I am a pastor or whatever. But God just says, I am, I am, I am. There's no one like him. I am me. This is what it means. I am. The the totality of my care. Hasn't he told them this over and over? He gives them all the failure of the idols and he said, and you're trying to compare them to me? He just said that in the last chapter. So he reminds them, I am, I am he, there's no one like me, I am the first and the last. I have existed before and I will exist. There is no one else who encompasses me, there is no one else who exceeds me. So when I say these things, you have one response and that is to be the people who call on my name, who, who, are, who swear by my name, who confess my name, who, who call themselves after the holy city, which I don't think we talked about there. That holy city is Jerusalem. It's identifying with the place God dwells. They are God's people in God's city. That's where God has revealed himself. You are the people who should stay themselves, who should lean on me. Why would you not if I am the first and the last? And we've already seen this term times, a couple of times before in chapter 41, verse 4, chapter 44, verse 6. And then he reminds them of what we have been over, over and over, that he has brought to them. It's a powerful reminder of the power and sovereignty of God, his hand in creation. Verse 13, my hand laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. This reminds us of Psalm 33, verses 8 and 9. Let all of the earth fear Yahweh. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke it and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Now I want, I want you to look at verse 13. When I call to them, that is creation, when I call to them, they stand forth together. 
Do you notice the comparison? God calls these people, and instead of obeying him and worshiping him in truth and in righteousness, what are they? They're stubborn, they're stiff-necked, they're hard-headed, they're treacherous, they are obstinate, they have been a rebel since their birth. But when God calls the creation, what do they do? The creation obeys, they stand forth. And we see that throughout scripture, don't we? We see that when Jonah is, is on the sea and God calms the sea. He works the sea up to prove his point and he calms the sea as soon as Jonah's uh, uh, body hits the surface of the water. We see that in the New Testament when Jesus calms the sea in the storm. The creation obeys. The creation has been placed, Romans 8, right, has been placed under the curse, not by their own doing, but by, by, by the one who put the curse on them because of the sin of man. And they're straining forward. They're leaning forward with excitement, the creation is, for the redemption of the sons of man because they will find their redemption in the son, redemption of the sons of man. Creation obeys. God's people refused. What a comparison. What a comparison to avoid being made of you. Verse 14. Assemble, all of you, and listen. Another command to hear or to listen. Who among them has declared these things? That is the idols. He's gathering everyone together, all the nations together, not just his people here, but all. It says Yahweh loves him. I think here we're talking about clearly about Cyrus because it says he shall perform his purpose on Babylon and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. And we've seen that all through this section. God intends to raise up Cyrus, a Persian king, to come in and overtake the Babylonians and then generously equip, give permission, but also equip financially his people to return to their homeland and begin to rebuild the temple and the wall. And this is God's plan. And he reveals it 150 years before he carries it out. So this is what he's reminding them, that he is the one that I love. He is the one loved by me, He shall perform his purpose. Now, what is his purpose? Is it Cyrus's? In one sense, it is, but what's Cyrus going to be thinking as he overtakes Babylon? How great am I? How powerful am I? And what's God saying? You're only doing what I've allowed. How great am I? How powerful am I? It is his purpose that he has carried out. His arm shall be against the Chaldeans. Remember, the arm is that symbol of power. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him and he will prosper in his way. He will prosper. Mark that word. God has called him so he will prosper in in carrying out the plan that God has. Verse 16, draw near to me. Another command, hear this, the fourth one that's in the imperative. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret From the time it came to be, I have been there. So he's making the same point that he has over and over again. He said, from the beginning of Cyrus's, my plan for Cyrus, I have spoken. I have made it known. I have not spoken in secret. And he's saying, I will get the glory when it comes and it will happen as I say. So you need to trust in me. That's That's his overarching message in these chapters that we are wrapping up here. And now, the last line of verse 16, 
We're getting ready to run under the brightest light in that tunnel now. And now, Adonai Yahweh, Lord God, Lord Yahweh, has sent me and his spirit. Now, in the ESV, the quotation marks quit before that verse, before that line. The quotation marks close at, from the time it came to be, I have been there, end quotation. You may have another version that doesn't end them there, ends it after verse 16. I think the ESV gets it right here and that we are to see another voice just out of nowhere, seemingly to us, another voice speaks and this is the voice of the servant. It's the same comparison here in 14, 15, and 16 as it was in 5 through 8. I've spoken in the past, it's come to, it's, and it has come to pass, and I've done it this way so I get the glory, and I'm speaking now things you've never heard before, but because I've not opened your ear to it, remember, it's, I haven't declared it to you so that you can hear yet, and that's going to happen in the future. We have the same pattern here. Cyrus, what's been talked about in the past, what God has brought forth, and that it will come, and in the, in the days of the Babylonian captivity, it's about to come. I mean, they, they, they may even see Cyrus on the horizon coming against Babylon. It's about to happen, even though we told it first 150 years earlier, and now we have the new thing. And now Adonai Yahweh has sent me. And how do we know that it's the servant and his spirit? It is the servant. It is the messianic one who is talked about in Isaiah as having the blessing of the, of the spirit upon them. We also see the same language. and We're not going to spend time here. We'll see it soon enough. This Adonai Yahweh again um, four or five times, four times in chapter 50 in the third servant song to talk about God's work in the servant. So this is just one of those foreshadowing that the servant is right around the corner. The messianic servant is just around the corner. And it's the transition into verse 17 and this description of what would happen if you obeyed your God. Look at verse 17. And thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am Yahweh, your God, who teaches you to profit. Just like Cyrus will profit, he teaches his people to profit who leads you in the way you should go. Now, one commentator broke this down in a way I think is very helpful, and I think it does help us see this progression. When he says that the Lord, in all the names that he uses, Yahweh, Redeemer, Holy One of Israel, um, Adonai, who teaches you to profit, that is your mind being engaged, who leads you, in, the way you sh- in, in, in a certain way, that is your will being engaged. And the, the way, the way you should go, the path that you should take, that is your obedience. Mind being engaged so that your will is engaged towards obedience to God. And God says, I do that in you. I do that. Look at your text. I am Yahweh, your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in all the way you should go. This is what God does. And then he laments, oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. In other words, if you would have obeyed. Remember, what did he say? You obey me, I will bless you. You disobey me, I will curse you. Because that is the conditions, that, that, that is the condition of the covenant. 
And what would happen if they would have done that? Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grain, their na- like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. Now, the first thing we have is obedience to what God said. That's the Mosaic covenant. And then we have the blessings that come through the Abrahamic covenant, right? The, the, the language of offspring and, and the numerous, like the seas, uh, like the sand, the descendants of the grain, and the result that you would not be cut off, you would not be destroyed from me, you would not be put away from me. So we have this picture of the gospel. God says, this is what I'm revealing, giving you a hint of my servant, my redeemer, the Messiah, and your role to obey him and when you do obey him and you listen to what you're taught and you let your will be moved by that and you are trying to obey and walking in the way that I placed before you, you are walking in the good deeds, Ephesians says, that he has planned from the beginning, from before time. This is what it looks like to walk according to the gospel and God does it. He teaches us to profit. Now when, we, when you think about profit, what do you think about? If you're thinking about profit and loss, is there a certain passage? There's, there's certain people in this, in this building right now that ought to be thinking about a book that we're studying in our growth groups. Turn to Philippians chapter three. Keep your finger in Isaiah and turn to Philippians chapter three. Look at Philippians 3, 7. Paul has just listed, if a pedigree mattered, there's nobody has a greater pedigree in the Jewish nation than me. Verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already attained this, or, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus had made, has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Full of profit and loss statements accounting terms. God teaches us to profit because he gave us his son. God teaches us what it means to walk in his ways because he gave us his son who perfectly walked in his way. He perfectly walked in the Mosaic covenant to bring about the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. All this back into, turn back to Isaiah 48. It's all right here in chapter 48. The redeemer is, is, is identified. The, he speaks, the servant, the messianic person that we're about to meet more fully in Isaiah. He speaks and then the Lord is saying how he teaches 
um, his people to profit and leads them in the way that they should go. And then he reminds him, you obey and you will be blessed. But these are a people who have been rebels since birth. So what hope do they possibly have? They have the hope of the one who will come and perfectly obey so that he brings the blessings of Abraham to all people who are in Christ. All people who are in Christ receive the blessings of Abraham, according to Galatians 3. All of that is brought to us in Old Testament form right here. And why does he do it? For the sake of his name. He doesn't leave it to us. If he left it to us, we're, without Christ, we're obstinate, amen? We're born rebels to him. We need someone else to work on our behalf and to act on our behalf, and that is God the Father through God the Son through the power of the Spirit providing redemption, and it's the same language that's used in the new covenant as well. I was gonna get there in a minute, but we're just gonna go there now. Keep your finger in Isaiah 48, and I want you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36. We're going to begin. Well, let's just, we're just going to see the whole thing here. Look at verse 16. Ezekiel 36, verse 16. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them, but... When they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. And that, in that people said of them, these are the people of Yahweh, and yet they had to go out, on this, out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations by which they came. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says Yahweh, thus says the Lord Yahweh, Adonai Yahweh, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares Adonai Yahweh, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. You see all the ties to Isaiah 48. And it's ties to other passages of scripture as well. God acts for his own glory and he is not going to have his name shamed so that anyone else gets glory instead of him. Verse 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Isn't that what he says in Isaiah 48 that he does for his people? He's the one who accomplishes this. Salvation is of the Lord. 
He's the one who provides it. He is the one who uh, details it. He is the one who empowers it. He is the one who calls his people. He is the one who sends the perfect obedient one to live a life of obedience so that you and I, who were rebels from birth, can benefit from his perfect obedience and gain the blessings promised to Abraham through the one true seed, Jesus Christ. There is no way that you and I, well, I think I like the idea of salvation. I think I choose Jesus. No, we choose Jesus because God's chosen us. We, we walk in obedience because God has called us to that obedience and he has caused us to walk in that obedience. And when we obey, he disciplines us, but he doesn't kill us because his son has p- obeyed perfectly. And so what he does for us is he brings us into the benefits of Christ's perfection by being in union with him. Now, I don't know about you, but that is an amazing truth that arrests my soul. And that's what's brought in Isaiah 40. When people tell me, well, we don't need the Old Testament. Jesus is in the Old Testament. Really? Have you read Isaiah 48? Have you read Isaiah 40? Have you read Isaiah 53? I I almost called the sermon series the gospel according to Isaiah. The only reason I didn't is because about 10 other people had already done the same thing. Because it's true. The gospel drips from Isaiah. Back in your text. Isaiah 48, verse 20. Go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea. Now, why would he have to do that? You see what he's assuming here? He's already said he's sending Cyrus and he's going to free them, and yet he still commands them to go as if there's some chance that they might not go. And we already know that there is, right? We already know there's been belly aching about God choosing Cyrus instead of a Davidic uh, descendant of David to come and deliver them. So God commands them to what he is planning for them to do. You see the connection here. God has said, I'm going to do this, and then he commands the people to do it because they are his and they should obey what he has commanded. Go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it, send it out to the end of the earth, say Yahweh has redeemed his servant Jacob. Why? Because the people in these other nations were the ones that would have thought that that Yahweh was worthy of shame if he didn't redeem his people. So the least his people do is go out into the world and say, Yahweh delivered us. Not any idol, no one else, Yahweh and Yahweh alone. The one who is from the first to the last, the the beginning and the end. The one who has no peers, the the one who he alone is is the only one worthy of worship. Go pronounce that to the nations. And then remind, and he's reminding his people now that they didn't thirst when, when God led them through the deserts. He split water made water flow from them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. This is that uh, constant tying back to the first exodus to remind us and prepare us for chapter 49 when the, the second exodus leader is more fully introduced, the servant. So reminding us of exodus in chapter 17 and numbers in chapter 20. And then the surprising verse, there is no peace says Yahweh, for the wicked. Why does he say that? Because he is reminding them, as one commentator said, I think Alec Motier said something to the effect, just because you change your home doesn't mean you've changed your heart. So they may be being led out of their captivity physically, but their sin still needs to be dealt with. 
So that is a reminder to them. Don't rest because there will be no peace for you if you remain wicked, rebellious, treacherous, as you have been from birth. And it prepares us as if we've come out of the tunnel now. It prepares us for the second servant song in Isaiah 49. Well, we hear it said a lot of times, mostly by progressives today in our world, that some people are just going to be on the wrong side of history. You heard that phrase? Now, that, there, there's much we could say tearing that apart. How do they know we're on the wrong side? It presumes that there's someone guarding and, and advancing history, that it has a point. It's not just happening randomly, but it has a point. So most of the people who say that aren't believing in any lord of history that's creating and guiding and sustaining and directing history, but they presume that. And why do they presume that? Because they are the center of their world. They make the assessment of what the right side of history is, and they condemn people who don't fall into their viewpoints. I'm going to tell you to forget about all of that. But there is one point in history that you need to be in right relationship with, and that's the only point in history that matters. All of history leading up to the days of Jesus and his life and death and resurrection and ascension, all of those days leading up to that, That is their culmination. Everything that has happened since and ever will happen, look back to that day. The resurrection is the cent- the resurrection and ascension following the life, birth and life of Jesus is the center point in history. And you and I must be related with that center point in the right way or none of history matters except where you will be heading when Jesus returns. So be right with him. Turn today from your sin and trust in the Savior that God promised to send, did send, and did everything that he said he would do, and in whom there is no salvation. Turn to him today. Because right now, your purification still has room. He has not sent his son again, and you will not be kept out of his salvation. He is long-suffering for your repentance. But if you're already here in Christ this morning, take the warning from Isaiah 48 and make sure that you're grooming your heart according to the scriptures. Because what will come out of you then will not just be a facade of fakery. It will be the proper response to a holy God who deserves glory for everything that he's doing in you. Working on the heart with the gospel is what produces true praise to God. And we can all fall into the trap of not being that. So Isaiah urges us today, don't do that. Cultivate a heart for God out of the spirit that he has given you so that you are walking in obedience to him and you have the profit that God intended for you to have in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. We are thankful that we are constantly reminded of our sinfulness, but also the solution to that sin. We are grateful that your word is constantly challenging us. For while we are in this life and still fighting sin, we need the reminders, Lord, that you give us through your discipline. But we also need to be reminded that your discipline, ultimate discipline for sin, was placed on your son, Jesus. And so for us, it is such a privilege to be able to walk according to your word, be free Lord, of the temptations of this world and the temptations of making the world about us and our own thinking and our own truth 
And we pray, Father, that you would do these things for your glory in our life so that we would be individuals who are parts of families, who are part of this church, who constantly sing your praises for your glory, for your name's sake, because you are the sovereign one. And you will save whom you please to save. And so we ask you, Father, to do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.